welcome back to the Preternaturally Inclined Podcast. Podcast that researches the esoteric aspects of the planet. Today, we'll be talking about plasma. Plasma, what is it? Why is the word used in so many ways? Well, today's episode has got very little to do with the plasma you'd find in blood. Or, as the experts say, and I quote, The colorless fluid part of blood, lymph or milk, in which corpuscles or fat globules are suspended. Blood plasma is a liquid portion of blood. It's 92% water and it's 55% blood volume. And that's from the American Red Cross. So today we'll be more going on about the Webster definition of plasma. It's an ionized gas consisting of positive ions and free electrons in proportions resulting in more or less no overall electric charge, typically at low pressures as in the upper atmosphere and like fluorescent lamps and that sort of thing, or at very high temperatures like with stars and nuclear fusion reactors. And they have an analogous substance that consists of mobile charged particles like a molten salt or the electrons, you know, when you stimulate them within a metal. And then there's another biological definition within Webster's, Miriam, perhaps, I don't even know where it was. Another term for the cytoplasm, the material in the protoplasm within a living cell, excluding the nucleus and protoplasm, the colorless material comprising the living part of a cell, including the cytoplasm, nucleus, and other organelles. Now, the word itself, plasma, it comes from a sense of, like, form, uh, a, a sense of shape. It was, in the late Latin, something they had molded, something created, uh, an image, a figure, a counterfeit, a forgery, something of formed style and affectation. And then plasin, which was to mold or to spread thin. And then they got plasin, and then the root is pele flat to spread and so the whole liquid when they asked like you know when they started saying it was a liquid part of blood that happened around 1845 and then they started using it as the ionized gas that happened around 1828 then the four states of matter everyone remember this from school the four states of matter were uh, solid gas liquid and plasma now Plasma is thought of as a state of matter, where there's a subset of gases, but the two states actually behave pretty differently. And just like gases, these have no real fixed shape, these plasmas. They have no real fixed shape or volume, and they, they're less dense. They weigh less than like a solid or a liquid. But, as opposed to ordinary gases, these plasmas are made up of atoms in which all of the electrons have been stripped away and they're all positively charged. And the, the nuclei of them are all positively charged, so they call them ions. And these ions just roam around. And here's Zhu Dong Hu, a professor of physics at the University of Buffalo. It's not really going to be him. But he has been quoted as saying that a gas is made of neutral molecules and atoms. That is... What he means by that is the number of negatively charged electrons will equal the number of positively charged protons. So it's it's all neutral base. But plasma, it's a charged gas, 
with strong electrostatic interactions. He was telling this to Live Science, which is the source I got it from. So all the atoms and the molecules within this charged gas, they can acquire something positive or negative as far as their electrical charge when they get more electrons or when they lose them. And so they call that uh, ionization. So everybody, they've always heard, like, okay, you know, plasma makes up the sun and the stars and all that. And they've, everyone keeps, they keep going on about, it makes, oh, it's the most common state of matter in the universe and, and so on and so forth. We'll get to that in a bit, but usual gas, like just normal gas, such as like you take nitrogen or you take hydrogen sulfide, they have a bunch of molecules within them that have basically no net charge at all. And a net charge is basically that all the electrons are charged at zero. So the volume has a net charge of zero, the gas volume. But plasmas, since they're charged particles, they can have a net charge of zero over their entire volume, but not down at the individual levels. And the electrostatic forces that you can find in between the particles get super significant, and then the effective magnetic fields on them can be seen pretty well. And since they're made of uh, charged particles, plasmas can move around and do things that gases they really can't do. Like plasmas can conduct electricity, and um, when these moving charged particles, they can make magnetic fields. Then plasmas themselves can also have magnetic fields. But I mean, when you're dealing with like an ordinary gas, like we were saying with a nitrogen or even air, considering air is kind of like its own kind of gas or whatever. All the particles move around and they're all behaving the same way. So if you have a bunch of gas in a container and it cools room temperature, they all move at the same speed. You measure the speed of each individual little particle. You'd get this little graph curve on them where they'd all be moving, you know, closer and closer to the average, what you would expect, you know. And then a couple maybe a little slowly, a little way, way, way fast. It just depends. And that's because... They're all bouncing around in, inside there, and they're all hitting each other, and then they transfer energy, so some are going to be moving a lot faster, some are going to be moving a lot slower, all that crap. But inside of a plasma, that doesn't really happen. Uh, when, like, Especially if you uh, witness a plasma within an electric or a magnetic field. Now, the magnetic field, when you witness a plasma, it can create like a, a population of very, very fast particles. Um... A lot of plasmas that they, they witness, they're not really dense enough to really like, knock into each other and stuff. So when you look towards the magnetic and electrostatic and how those interactions work out, that becomes a little bit more more important to them. But uh, I'm not even sure what electrostatic interaction is. I won't lie to you. Um, but they do mention that how the particles you'd find in a plasma, the electrons and the ions... They interact with each other using electricity and magnetism. And they can do so at far greater distances than, like, normal gas. And uh, then that's when they start talking about waves. And so waves become more of an important issue in plasma and such. So they have this one, an Alvin wave, which I'm sure I'm, I'm ruining that, Alvian, something like that. Uh, and it'll travel along the field lines, like the magnetic field lines of the plasma. And you can't really, like, witness this in a normal gas, like a hydrogen or, you know, uh, nitrogen or anything like that. 
and then they kind of think that the Alvin reasons are, or the Alvin waves are the reasons that the uh, Sorrel Corona, those little things that shoot out from the sun, the Corona, it, that's also a plasma. That's why they think that's kind of million degrees, or you know, within the millions and millions of degrees. But then when you see it on the surface, it's only thousands, um, because those kind of wave physics become uh, important when it becomes within that level of realm. But one thing they've been able to research and they've been able to establish so far is that these plasmas, even at millions of degrees, you can hold them in place with magnetic fields. And pretty much all the fusion power research that's been going on, that's exactly what they're doing. And if they want to create exactly the right conditions for a fusion, they need super hot plasma. I mean... One guy was saying, like, at 150 million degrees. And no material. There's no known material who can, that can contain that kind of heat. So they've kind of used magnetic fields and whatnot. But, I mean, we think of plasmas. Just general stuff like, you know, gas. Like in a neon for signs, you know. You think of it as like a fluorescent light bulb. Or you think of a TV. Makes perfect sense. So, you know, when you think of neon, that's just a gas, and then they put a high voltage through it, and that's the what's happening and what's going on is there, is the electrons either separated from the atoms or pushed to higher energy levels, and then the gas inside the bulb becomes conductive, becomes a conductive plasma, and then the excited electrons will drop back into their previous energy, and then they'll emit photons. So the light that we see in a neon or fluorescent lamp is kind of like this weird conductive plasma and then the tvs we're talking about that's the same exact thing they take argon neon xenon something like that they take it into this tiny little gap between two glass panels and they pass an electric current through it and it causes it to glow and then the plasma will it will react in these red green or blue kind of lights and then they'll go off to provide combine specific colors basically I, they got this source to ebay apparently no And of course, the cool things, uh, the plasma globes everyone loves. They have this, this noble gas mix inside, and it produces the color of lightning within an electric current. And it'll ionize the gas, like when you put your finger on it, and makes one of those. And then you can see your finger connected to it. It's pretty cool. And what's interesting, too, is the auroras. Like when you think of like the aurora borealis, that will, that's another kind of an example of a plasma. When the sun has like crazy amount of activity the solar wind is just blasting off and it's just a stream of charged particles and it smashes in the earth magnetic field and then these particles since they're charged they go along the magnetic field lines move toward the poles they, then they smash together with atoms in the air like oxygen and nitrogen and stuff so then those excited oxygen and nitrogen atoms they like get all get all tickled like neon and, and then they start like, giving off life get all uh get off give off light i'm sorry and get all translucent and such. Which almost makes me want to talk about the plasma that you would find in lightning, but we'll get to that a bit later. And we want to talk about the true true aspects of how plasma was first sort of discovered, described, and whatnot. And kind of meant, like we were saying before, 
It's a moldable substance. It's one of the four fundamental states of matter. And then uh, chemist Irving Langmuir? Langmuir. Langmuir? Langmuir. Okay, Irving L, we'll call him, in the 1920s. And then obviously, like, you got your solid, your liquid, gas, all of that. Plasma, it doesn't exist on the Earth's surface in any kind of normal conditions. It can only be artificially generated by heating something, subjecting a neutral gas to a strong electromagnetic field to the point where an ionized gaseous substance becomes increasingly electrically conductive. And then you can have a bunch of long-range electromagnetic fields kind of dominate this behavior and whatnot. They behave in weird ways, like ionized gases, plasma, it's way unlike all the other states. And when you transition between an ionized gas and a plasma, just it's all a matter of like nomenclature. It's all subject to interpretation and all that. So when you base it all on the uh, surrounding environment where you have the, intemp- the temperature and the density and then you see the the partially ionized or the fully ionized forms of plasma, such as lightning, which is a fully ionized form, uh, you see it produced. Well, the partially ionized plasma... No, I, I take that back. What I was saying was the fully ionized, the partially ionized is like lightning and neon and stuff like that. But when you're talking about the par- the fully ionized, that's like the interior of the sun. It's super, super hot. You know, the corona and stars and stuff like that, that's fully ionized. I don't even know what fully ionized, but I mean, when they talk about the positive charge in ions, they strip away the electrons that are orbiting the atomic nuclei. And the total number of the electrons that they remove from it, it's related to either the increasing temperature or, you know, the kind of like the density of all the other matter around it that's also in turn been ionized. So, I mean, this can be accompanied by a whole crazy bunch of different, like, scenarios where you can have the dissociation of molecular bonds. And through that process, it's distinctly different from all of the chemical processes where you're going to deal with, like, liquids or, you know, when you share ions and metals and all that sort of thing. So the response of plasma through electromagnetic fields can be employed in a lot of modern technological devices like a lot of uh, computer chips, they etch plasma onto it, and then, like we were saying before, plasma televisions. And when people say, oh, yeah, it's the most um, common form of uh, ordinary matter in the universe, that's pretty tentative because they don't really know much about the existence of like, dark matter and the unknown properties of it and whatnot. So, I mean, when you really think about it, mostly it's associated with stars and stuff like that. <laughs> what they put here is the rarefied intercluster medium uh, and intergalactic regions and so on and so forth. So that's kind of a quick rundown. (laughs) Uh, Quick is, yeah, a very subjective term, but the, the deeper and deeper you get into what plasma is, its uses are so numerous. And, um, Really recently, what fascinated me, because today I was going to get into some weird nonsense, speculation nonsense, what fascinated me is, um, like, when I was a kid, you'd see movies, I think it was like Val Kilmer, The Saint, or something like that, but you'd see movies, and they'd be like, oh, 
uh, you know, create cold fusion, cold fusion, you know, and it seemed like a pipe dream. Well, not necessarily cold fusion. In fact, the exact opposite of what you would think as cold fusion. Um, it's, uh, it's nuclear fusion in essence. It's, uh, like plasma fusion sort of a thing. Like, let's, they, they call it fusion theory and all these different things. And I was listening to a podcast about it back in uh, 2011 that Princeton had put out. And it was basically the podcast. You can see that it had say on like fusion energy. It's like 15 minutes. And it had a lot to say with how difficult it's going to be uh, for all the difficulties that are going to lay ahead for the intrepid inventor of fusion power. And what this guy was saying was that fusion power, you can accomplish fusion power if you make like a tiny little sun on the earth. Now, basically what that'll mean is it's not going to leave this super heavy carbon imprint or anything like that. And, um, it's fueled by this detritium. I believe he was saying you remove it from water and then you mix it together with his tritium nuclei. I mean, this was back in 2011. I'm not sure if they even do that process anymore, but Basically, what they were doing with the process was they were they were creating a superheated gas by fusing together these, you know, really, I suppose, easy to fuse together atoms, and they would fuse it at like 150 million degrees. So it would make a crap ton of energy when you use that heat, you know. And they were saying it didn't have like too many greenhouse gases. There wasn't too much nuclear waste. And basically, the way he was putting it was, it's completely impossible for it to melt down or have like a runaway chain reaction. Because it's not like rods that are permanently in there. If anything changes, then it just sort of fizzers out. Like, he was saying that one of the only byproducts is helium. Which, I mean, it's harmless unless someone closes the valve and it just floats away. Ah! But, I mean, no emissions. Kind of like the uh, the standard uh, nuclear reactors, the, the standard fission reactors. It doesn't have, like, super bad emissions and stuff like that. So, I mean, a lot of talks were happening... In nine, uh, excuse me, a lot of talks were happening in 2011 after the Fukushima disaster, of course. All this alternative energy uh, research was coming out, and a lot of it's been done since. I was at this website uh, earlier on by the Plasma Science and Fusion Center, based out of MIT. And what they use are these pretty amazing, uh, I mean, it's mind-blowing. We'll get to it in a second. They use these amazing machines to carry out some uh, experiments, and I'm not sure exactly uh, how functional they are, but, I mean, a lot of the research is, is put out. But anyway, here we go. This is from the website at um, psfc.mit.edu. You can check it out. It's basic plasma theory and simulation. And so the basic theory starts out where Plasmas are flowing through solid objects and they create a wake. And then like the interactions are like when you send a probe to the sun or other structures in outer regions of magnetic fusion plasmas. Like when we send something through the magnetosphere of Earth, which is made of plasma and all that nonsense. But then like the physics, uh, it's pretty similar to what happens like when the solar wind goes past the moon or like a spacecraft or whatever. So understanding the behavior of the dust particles and plasmas. And the interaction of these plasmas with all the structures surrounding them, you gotta you gotta solve the solutions of all these same equations and whatnot. 
So it goes pretty deep into about, you know, the computational plasma physics and so on and so forth. And a lot of them are complex, nonlinear, multidimensional, and so on. So it gets really heavy really fast. And um, one way that they determine it is this, I mean, it's kind of simple to explain, but we'll just, we'll try our best to get through it here. It's obtained by this numerical simulation called particle in cell. And basically the way it's set up is they take huge numbers of like representative particles, like a billion, and then they put it into a computer and they represent it with their position, their velocity, and then they can plug in a bunch of different equations of electromagnetism and, you know, all these sort of things about like giving rise to these weird self-consistent electric and magnetic fields. Well, then they put their motion together, and it represents the whole surrounding plasma region. It represents the wake, and then their rate of flow to the solid surfaces and forces they exert. can calculate it inside of the computer, and it can account for all the crazy, complicated geometry and the plasma effects. that don't, We don't quite understand why plasma works or even behaves that certain way. It can account for all of that. So when they talk about the stability of plasma, it's an important basic physics problem that they they have to explore it and it's it's one of the like i guess you could say the thing is getting in the way of them really solving how to create plasma fusion kind of energy you got to take a huge host of these challenging non-linear phenomena like self-organized structures eddies in phase space and like you know turbulence and plasma <clears throat> which i decided i'm not going to get into turbulence and plasma today i'm already too deep in this nonsense but the whole the whole way they figure it out with with um, to create a sort of a fusion core reactor like this is they use high energy density physics, and basically what that is is they study matter at these extreme states of pressure, one m bar to a thousand g bar, which I have no idea what that means, but basically it's like a million to trillion times of the atmospheric pressure of Earth's surface. And places where it occurs are like the Earth's core, the Sun's core, you know, igniting internal confinement fusion implosions, which can be, you know, within an excess of 250 G-bar. So at those kind of pressures, the matter will behave completely differently than at, you know, normal Earth-like pressures. And there's all sorts of uh, rich physics to study and whatnot. So they have to study that physics to understand certain things like how elements are made, you know, how stars form, and especially how to harness fusion energy on Earth using these inertial confinement fusion implosions. And I mean, the HEDP, or the High, en high Energy Density Physics Department within uh, MIT's PSFC's source, were saying about their topics can go from anywhere from these extreme physical conditions even achievable on large offsite facilities that are specially designed for research with an HEDP and in an ICF, which is an inertial confinement fusion. So the laser energy that they use, they compress these capsules that are filled with fuel and then they compress them to these high density and pressure and then they create this fusion reaction and basically what they want to do is they want to make a self-sustained fusion burn, a quote-unquote ignition, and then it'll generate energy, you know. 
And a lot of what the lasers they use is like the 30 kilojoule Omega laser, which sounds awesome, at the University of Rochester. And then they got the 2 megajoule laser at the National Ignition Facility. So, I mean, they're not just working on their own. They got a bunch of collaborators and such where they take a bunch of, um, you know, special diagnostic instrumentation. And it makes it, you know, it makes it so that they can research or they can fund a lot of other research and whatnot. But a lot of the instrumentation they come up with, it makes it possible to study all the weird, like, spatial and temporal variations in plasma and the the properties of uh, the electromagnetic spills the electromagnetic fields through a bunch of like spectral, temporal, and imaging kind of measurements and stuff that they'll take. And, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're active at it. You know, they're doing it in their facilities. They're analyzing all their results. You know, you got to love it. It's great. But, I mean, when you think about, well, okay, we've talked about, you know, plasmas in the, in the stars and, plasmas within all these sorts of different things all over well it it should definitely play a role in astrophysics well like we were saying before the earth's magnetosphere it's got this this plasma basically the magnetosphere is kind of made of plasma and it surrounds the planet and it'll protect us from high-speed solar wind and basically the solar wind is the plasma that's shot out from the sun well the properties of those plasmas they can play a key role in determining the Space weather, which I have some ridiculous theory. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that later, probably next episode. But as a complement to these weird space-based observations and satellite measurements, it's one of those things where they, they really have to study them. they got to get them in a nice controlled environment. It's a well-diagnosed laboratory environment, you know. So they run these experiments with these laboratory astrophysics, they create space plasmas in the lab. And then they can study that shit in, in detail. It's amazing. And they get this thing like the dipole magnetic field. And it's the simplest and most common magnetic field configuration in the universe. Magnetic field generated by a single circular current loop. And in, in our, our, like, when we can have our, our capability to create and study them in great, great ways, these breakthroughs come across... When they come across with uh, in a laboratory in Tokyo, where they had a levitated dipole experiment, also one at MIT, and then the RT1 was the one at Tokyo. Sorry, so it was a levitated dipole experiment. So basically, these were levitating. Hold on a sec. I'll explain exactly what it is. Uh, they they have to have these super conducting magnets, which you know some. I'm assuming they have to be super cooled and whatnot, but the levitated dipole experiment, which is also known as like the LDX, which it has as MIT, it's half a ton. It's a high current superconducting ring. They levitate it for hours inside of the five meter, which sixteen and a half feet basically diameter vessel, and then this vessel is like a vacuum kind of a thing, and then they have this feedback control, and then when they have the magnet levitated the large laboratory magnetosphere that they're trying to go after, then they can create that. And the one in Jap- the one in Tokyo and the one in Japan is a little bit different than the other one because the one that's in MIT, they have these loops that get thread. This plasma gets thread through these loops in the coil and it avoids contact with any of the material surface. So it's just basically floating in midair. 
and it reaches really high plasma pressure. And then that way, when they can study the way the dipole fields, the way the dipole field works and whatnot, then they can understand all the weird turbulent dynamics relevant for all the plasmas and physics, astrophysics, space physics, and especially fusion energy, you know. So, I mean, a lot of the upgrades they're going to be putting on this little machine, auxiliary heating and stuff like that, that way they can increase the temperature of the plasma, and then it'll help them realize stuff like when they want to when they want to um, study the magnetospheres around Jupiter and Saturn or some crap, and do whatever. It helps them when they can increase the temperature of the plasma, so they'll just keep advancing uh, the usefulness of that machine and so on and so forth. But anyway, all these new facilities that are coming up with these low density plasmas. They can allow access to these low-density plasmas in the solar wind. And they have a super high-fidelity measurement system. And it'll study basically the physics of... And I didn't look into this one too much, but the physics of magnetic reconnection. Which I'll have to look into it a little bit more on the second episode. But it's an important phenomenon in plasmas throughout the universe. This magnetic reconnection kind of thing. But basically... When they simulate them, or if they were to create them, or whatnot, a lot of understanding, it's a lot of theoretical, a lot of numerical simulations on large computers. The theory and simulation that the PSFC came up with, the one, the, the uh, Plasma Research Institute at MIT, they came up with this, this group that can develop fundamental plasmic physics concepts. It's a part of the National Fusion Program, quote-unquote, and... For advancement of plasma science in general. So what they use for a lot of the research in a lot of the, the how the plasma like how the plasma fusion is being created are these things called tokamaks. So a lot of these groups they're providing a lot of theoretical and a lot of like computational support for these tokamaks. And these things are worldwide. And uh, they have these other ones which are toroidal confinement devices like stellarators it's totally interesting stuff um but basically the plasma inside of the, the fusion power plant the very gist of the whole thing is it works great but it's never perfectly confined it'll interact with the walls and it'll modify the plasma and the wall materials the interactions between the burning hot plasma and the plasma-facing wall can be really detrimental. You expose the material wall to energetic plasma, it erodes the material from the wall, shortens the life of the plant. The fuel, it can be implanted and trapped in the walls by removing it from the fusion cycle. The neutrons produced by the fusion reaction can change the wall's thermal and mechanical properties, and when you expose certain plasma conditions, even they can even lead to the growth and evolution of complex nanocell surface structures. I have no idea what that means. But additionally, the choice of the wall material strongly impacts the plasma performance. So you have to basically wall these things in really well. Even if you are using mag magnetic, um, basically the plasma is floating in midair. There's no real material that can... can uh, hold it but it never stays there's always a turbulence and the turbulence will will definitely wiggle it all sorts of different ways so i mean 
when we understand these physics with how the the plasma and the wall will interaction, then we can minimize all of the detrimental effects and we can have a pretty commercially viable fusion power plant out of these. Uh, but basically, the up-and-coming one, especially the ones the MI2 used, was called the Alcator CMOD. The tokamak they were using was the Alcator CMOD. And basically, what they would use were these ion accelerators with high-energy ions, and then they would diagnose materials and measure changing characteristics as a result of plasma exposure. So these high-energy ions would be used to stimulate the neutron damage expected from a fusion reactor environment. But the Alcatel CMOD Togmac, it exposes metallic tungsten and molybdenum wall materials to, to reactor-like conditions, diagnosing changes in the wall and plasma, developing mitigation strategies. But I mean, all the experience that they've had with the Alcator C mod, it helps the MIT and all of them, all of the world leaders who are operating token mods with their fully metallic walls, to understand exactly how the plasma material interactions with it. And uh, since I'm talking about the Alcator C mod, we'll go into that one a little bit. Basically, what this one is is it's experimental device. It's a tokamak. The CMOD itself is an experimental device called a tokamak, which you've said before. And it's a configuration that's considered for how the future of the fusion reactors will be. And basically, the CMOD that they've created, it's the only compact, the world's only, according to this one, it's a compact, high magnetic field, diverted tokamak, and it allows access to all these crazy, unique experience, uh, experimental uh, aspects of it. It influences the direction of the World Fusion program and complete. They have this high magnetic field. It's basically 160,000 times the Earth's magnetic field. And what it does is it helps the device to create these small, dense, hot plasmas. And these, like we were saying before, were 150 million degrees. They're way greater than 100 million degrees. So, I mean, it's prototypical of what you would think, you know, in a fusion reactor, essentially. And the CMOD itself, it's got the record. It holds the record for the highest volume of average plasma in a magnetic confinement device. So, it's a great metric you can use to kind of measure out how the fusion performance in the future is going to be, kind of a thing. And then the third in the series of high-field tokamaks at MIT... This CMOD, it has one of the highest leverage of expertise with like all high field magnets, high power radio waves, because I do believe that they heat it using RF signals. Uh, it's one of the leaders in plasma physics, the fusion materials and such. All of the theory and simulation, it's got the cutting edge um, engineering, everything you could use, you know, everything you could want. Basically, they've been using it to come up with all sorts of new results and everything, you know. So this experiment has made quite a bit of data. It goes into all these sorts of new understanding of physics. It goes into all these new parameters and all these sorts of things. Because all of the regimes throughout the world who are operating these tokamaks, they have a bunch of these new technical solutions to the problems that happen within the fusion. So the, like I was saying before, the high power densities that the plasma is heated to use radio frequency heating. They have these little novel antennas, and then they have this microwave current drive pumping through these things. The relatively large power in these small devices. They can have all sorts of tests with heat exhaust, reactive relevant, heat and particle fluxes, and all those sorts of things. 
reactor-relevant diverter geometries, quote-unquote. So the way the CMOD was going to handle all of these was it pioneered the, quote-unquote, vertical target plate diverter, and then they used refractory metals. So I assume like a, a shiny kind of a gold sort of a thing, and then the other design... It's, it's a design that they've used with these refractory metals. They use it in the ITER, or as uh, the podcast I was saying earlier from Princeton, it's about like 15 minutes long, you can find it on Podbean. He was calling it the Eater, the, the professor who was, um, who was, I'm sorry, I don't know his name, but the professor who they interviewed in the Princeton podcast. Anyway, all the studies they've been using with this CMOD, this Alcator CMOD, it actually clears up all the rotation and shear and all of the sort of like you need to have this stability across the plasma fields and have these operating regimes at a high field so there's no explosive instabilities. And one of the three domestic tokamaks and U.S. Department of Energy funded facilities. It has a bunch of collaborators from all over the world, 100 professors, scientists, students, engineers, all these sorts of things one of the largest experiments. And um, the completion of operations at the end of September 2016 has been placed into a safe shutdown with no experiments planned. However, they do have quite a bit of data archived for more than 20 years of operations. So we'll see how it quite goes. I mean, they did have a pretty amazing, amazing little um, diagram that showed how one of these works. But I'll talk about that a bit later and the aspect that they talk about, which is interesting here, is all of the hot plasma they have at, at high pressure, the strong magnetic fields have to confine a very hot, it's many hot, many times hotter than the, the center of the sun plasma, up to 10 times atmospheric pressure at the Earth's surface. So, I mean, it's really, really, really difficult for these things to happen. And these guys are coming up with all of the certain solutions. And I would have to reference you to a bit more research on how exactly the high field way, high field pathway to fusion power quite is. But I mean, basically, the power they produce in a tokamak, it's proportional to the strength of the magnetic field to the fourth power. I have no idea what that means. So I probably won't get too much into that today i do find it pretty interesting i won't lie and when i say pffc's research is pretty intense and it's very very broad and sweeping and i'm sure they're really figuring it out it's basically because they've got quite a bit of credence like they've come up with a lot of technologies and diagnostics heating confinement and a lot of applications in energy and environment and, you know, the thing about their extensive experience with magnetic fields, they've been able to come up with a lot of different ones, these high-power radio waves, these accelerators, these detectors, a lot of nuclear technology. A lot of these things have broad explications beyond its core, you know, scientific missions and whatnot. And all these areas, it helps with the development of these low-temperature plasma technologies. And when they say low, they mean cooler than the sun, but still very hot. And sort of non-thermal chemistry to help solve a bunch of like weird environmental problems that have going on. And I mean, they got this huge long history. The PF, 
PSFC. They got a huge long history. They've applied their experience in all sorts of places. Like they've had seven research and development awards from R and D one hundred. They got three spin off companies. They generated sixty issued patents. I mean, a lot of these are these weird, crazy novel sensors for automotive applications, for glass melters, air pollution. I mean, they've been able to come up with quite a bit, so we'll have to take their their word for it. But, I mean, definitely check out that podcast from Princeton. That one had quite a bit more information on uh, Fusion. He put it a little more succinctly than I did, but... uh the fact of the matter is, his approximation was that the first um, demonstration reactors, they'd be coming on in about 20 years or so. And when I saw the diagram with that little tiny guy standing next, like, I mean, I was, you know, I was kind of blown away. But how close are we? Well, now they have this device called Spark. And it's the MIT Plasma Science and Fusion Center. Again, they've been developing a conceptual design for SPARC. A compact, high-field, net fusion energy experiment. Experiment. Be the size of existing mid-sized fusion devices, but it has a much stronger magnetic field. So with the established physics, it would be able to produce 50 to 100 megawatts of fusion power, and it would achieve fusion gain, which I believe would be some sort of Tesla measurement or something. A fusion gain would be greater than 3. And the experiment would be the first demonstration of its net energy gain. It would validate the promise of high-field devices built with a new superconducting technology. I mean, the thing that's great about it is I mean, it'll fit into this overall strategy where it can feed up um, fusion development by increasing that uh, magnetic field. With these crazy high-field, high-temperature superconducting what they call HTS magnets. The first step they got to do in this roadmap is they got to carry out research that will lead to the developing of these large superconducting magnets I was talking about just a second ago. So they haven't quite researched them yet, but they have to collaborate. MIT has to collaborate with a fusion startup company, Commonwealth Fusion Systems. And at the time of the article's writing... They were saying how they will join up with their energy initiative as an industry, university industrial collaboration to execute the plan. So we'll see. I mean, they've got a lot of things in the works right now. And it sounds kind of promising. We'll see how it all pans out and whatnot. Um, I do apologize for not being all too terribly concise for that one, but... uh. If you have any comments, go ahead and leave them below or wherever the hell the area would be that you'd have to clip to leave comments. But go ahead and leave them or you can uh, email me at, uh, I'll use the Yahoo one this time, H-Y-P-N-U-S-N-Y-X at Yahoo.com or, um, you know, send me a message on Facebook, V-A-N-S-W-E-A-R-I-N-G-E-N. If you can figure that out, you can find me. No. But uh, hey, guys, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week with uh, some more weird, crazy, speculative nonsense as far as how plasma really works. And maybe it has a strange relation to a life force or maybe even a relation to the growth of flora and bacteria. 
But yeah, be sure to tune in on that one. And it's going to be off the rails for at least a couple of moments. So enjoy it. But uh, anyway, I'll see you guys next time. Bye.